It's Friday, June 9th, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing about where oil prices are going and why Saudi Arabia's economic outlook just got darker. But first, I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Let's start, shall we, with the past week's rate decisions, Australia's Reserve Bank and the Bank of Canada. We are among a tiny minority in the market to expect them to hike, and hike they did. Seemed like quite a shock to others in the market. Why is it significant that these banks had paused in prior meetings with with their with their rate decisions, but are suddenly hiking again? Yes, we've got pauses, we've got skips, we've got unpausing. There's a whole lexicon now, isn't there, that's sprung up around central bank decisions. And clearly the focus in markets is what does this mean for the Fed and the ECB in the coming week and the Bank of England the week after? I think there's some similarities between what has happened in Australia and Canada and other advanced economies, the US and and the Eurozone. But there's some important differences too. The differences in particular relate to the housing market. So housing markets everywhere have started to bottom out, which seems improbable given the extent of interest rate increases over the past 12 months. But there's signs of stabilization pretty much everywhere. But actually in Canada, the market seems to really have picked up. And also the same is true in Australia. So I think part of the, the, the tightening of policy in both Australia and Canada was to push back against some of the, the rebound in the housing market, where, of course, house prices are particularly overvalued. There's less of an issue around housing markets in Europe and in the US and less of a concern about bubbles there reinflating, I think. But the similarity is that core inflation has been falling in the US and the Eurozone and in Canada and Australia, but more slowly than central banks would like. It's still more sticky and still higher than than they're, they're comfortable with. And that is another part of what's informed this move by the RBA and the Bank of Canada. I think that's where the lesson is for the Fed and the ECB. And I think that's probably why maybe the Fed skips a hike at its next meeting, but I suspect it'll be hiking again in July. Our global team did analysis last year, looking at all of this, looking at how these cycles develop from, from rate hikes to rate cuts. And and its conclusion was that there's there's really no such thing as a standard cycle. So so if you're an investor, how are you meant to decipher when a pause is actually the end of rate hikes and, and you know what we call the, the plateau in our analysis and then the rate cuts that are going to follow? Yes, I think the first point to make is the one you've just mentioned, which is that there's no such thing as a standard cycle. So the idea that central banks hike rates and then they keep rates on hold for an average of four, six months, and then they start to cut again. Well, yes, on average, but each cycle is different. So there's no such thing as a standard cycle. So there's not a great deal we can learn from history. I think that the second point that's really important is that this cycle is, for want of a better word, just quite weird. We have seen a cycle of extremes, is how I've characterized it in my note that's coming out in the coming weeks. We've had an extreme recession around the pandemic. We've had an extreme injection of policy stimulus in response to that. We've then seen an extreme shift in consumer spending patterns from services to goods and back again. We've seen an extreme rise in prices, and now we've seen an extreme increase in interest rates. So a cycle of extremes, and that is reflected and manifesting itself in the way that the macro economy is responding. So we've seen a big surge in manufacturing production, and now that's coming off. We've seen a collapse in services output during the pandemic, and now that's resurgence. So it's very difficult for central banks to read this 
this economy, I think. It's difficult for economists to read this economy. And our old inflation models, as we've discussed on this podcast in the past, are not working. The old Phillips curve framework for thinking around inflation is not working. The short point being that central banks, I don't think, know when they're done tightening. So it's unlikely that investors are going to be very clear either. So that marks this cycle out as extremely strange, I think. One consequence of that is that central banks are paying more attention to actual inflation rather than forecast inflation because they think they can't trust their forecasts as much as they used to be able to. The consequence of that, of course, is that monetary policy works within a lag. So almost by definition, they're telling us they're going to over-tighten if they're going to be tightening until such point that core inflation is really definitively falling, when they've probably done too much at that point. So I think the one thing we can be reasonably sure about is that central banks will continue to tighten until such time that they're sure that core inflation is on a downward trajectory. But by that point, they've probably done a bit too much. So that then means that almost inevitably, we're going to get a downturn at some point in the months and quarters ahead, the timing of which though is still quite uncertain. So from all of this, you see sharper risk of a downturn with every rate hike, because there's been a lot of coverage about how institutions are taking recessions out of their forecasts, about how some market pricing had been reducing the likelihood of, of recession. The end game here that you're describing as, as every hike, you know, that the risk of something breaking grows, that a sharper downturn becomes more likely, presumably that suggests that, that recession is more likely at the end of all of this. I think that's probably right. Yeah, there's a danger here that we fall into what we've called the Truman trap, the famous Harry Truman quip about give me a, a one-handed economist because all of mine say on the one hand this, but on the other hand, something else. So I think is, there's a danger here if we're not careful that we end up hedging our our bets. But I think that probably is the most likely outcome. Yes, that there's still a, a recession. Like I say, the economy is quite difficult to read, but the logic of policy tightening and the fact that it operates with such a lag is that at some point that will start to bear down on demand. Now, I think it's fair to say that at this stage, economies across the developed world have been far more resilient than we and others had anticipated. I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One is the lingering effects of the pandemic still in terms of how that's affected consumer behavior, but also accumulated savings during the pandemic helping to sustain consumer spending, I think. Now, clearly, they're, they're, those are time-limited factors. And like I say, the, the lagged effects of policy tightening will eventually start to feed through. So that makes me think that at some point, a downturn is more likely than not, and a recession is still more likely than, than not. And we've kept recessions in the UK, US, and the Eurozone in our forecasts, albeit mild ones. The timing of those are uncertain, but I suspect that by the time we get to the end of this year, that's going to be coming into sharper focus. That was Neil Shearing on this extreme and frankly weird economic cycle. The note that he referenced will be on the podcast page along with our Fed preview and our RBA and Bank of Canada analysis. Now, Saudi Arabia news of recent days has been dominated by news that as Live Golf is merging with the PGA Tour and that Karim Benzema is following Cristiano Ronaldo to the Saudi Pro League. Glance at the headlines, you may not notice that Saudi Arabia drove another OPEC Plus production cut last weekend. The oil market certainly didn't seem to care too much. To find out what happened and what this all means for the Saudi economy, I spoke to William Weatherburn from our commodities team and James Swanston, who leads our coverage of the Gulf economies. And I started by asking Bill why oil prices had failed to respond to this latest OPEC cut. Yes, well, they, they did respond a small amount when markets opened. 
prices are up a little bit, but since then they've unwound. And as I look at the price today, the price of Brent crude oil is down a percentage point compared to before the meeting. And really, in, in most part, this is just because the cut that Saudi Arabia announced, although large at 1 million barrels per day, which is you know, roughly equivalent to 1% of oil supply, is only for July. And that may be a bit of a tightening of the market for one month, but most investors and market participants would look at the oil supply and demand dynamics over a bit of a longer period than a single month. The other reason that prices haven't responded much is because of worries about US economic activity. In particular, will the US enter a recession? That's the main reason that prices have been a bit subdued lately. So looking at the price outlook and, and this question about the, the macro environment, how do our forecasts for much weaker growth, if not outright recession, in most advanced economies balance with a, a tightening market that, that you've described in your analysis? Yes, it is. It's an, it's an interesting question that on the supply side, the market looks set to be very constrained. Even though OPEC Plus didn't announce any further output cuts, they have already cut production quite substantially once this year and once at the end of last year. And other large producers, such as the United States, look fairly unlikely to increase production by very much. It's well known that the shale producers didn't increase output last year when prices were very high. So it's pretty unlikely they'll be able to increase output by much this year when prices are you know, roughly $25 a barrel lower. So for this reason, the supply side looks very constrained. And that's going to get coupled with reasonably strong demand in economies outside of Western Europe and the United States. So for example, China's demand is growing, maybe not as much as many people had hoped. But by our GDP forecast, we're expecting about 6.5% growth, which should lead to a reasonably large boost in crude demand. On top of that, the aviation, particularly international aviation, has not recovered fully from COVID restrictions. So there should be a little bit of a boost there too when Chinese refiners ramp up kerosene production. So we think the supply and demand forces point to a reasonably tight crude market in the second half of the year, particularly quarter four. And we think that the price of Brent crude oil will average around $85 per barrel over Q4 2023 compared to the current price of $76 per barrel. James, I'd like to bring you in here if I can. As soon as that OPEC deal was announced at the weekend, you slashed your Saudi Arabia growth forecast. Talk us through that. Yeah, on the back of the latest OPEC Plus deal, we've now revised our GDP growth forecast for Saudi Arabia in line with the latest oil production cuts and the mechanical factors of how they feed into our forecast within the kingdom. Firstly, the cuts to oil output mean that the oil sector as a whole will contract by around 8% this year. And when you then factor that into overall GDP in, in Saudi Arabia, we are now the only analyst to currently expect that the Saudi Arabian economy will contract this year. We have currently penciled in a 0.5% contraction in GDP this year. It's worth noting as well that outside of the global financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic, that this would be the weakest pace of economic growth in Saudi Arabia in nearly two decades. So it sounds like Saudi Arabia is taking the economic brunt of this latest cut. Bill, a good part of your analysis of these OPEC meetings really gets into the weeds in terms of the politics within the cartel membership. Talk through some of the notable dynamics within the group and how they're influencing current decision making. Yes. One of the, one of the clear messages out of this meeting is that 
Other members of OPEC Plus, excluding Saudi Arabia, are very reluctant to cut production. As you said, David, this has meant that Saudi Arabia has been the one to implement a unilateral production cut. And they've had to do this for for a few reasons, but one of them has been a face-saving reason. A few weeks ago, the Saudi Arabian energy minister had warned short sellers that they needed to watch out. But there are a a couple of more reasons that Saudi Arabia would, would want to keep oil prices high. One of which is that some analysis that James has done suggests that their break-even oil price is $80 per barrel. Although I would I would say that the, the battle to defend the $80 per barrel oil price is over for this year. If I could just jump in. I think one thing that's interesting as you rightly mentioned is some of the other OPEC members not wanting to, to cut production any further. One thing we followed across our coverage on Middle East and North Africa is the UAE in all of this. It's time to leave the group and we heard previously from reports that had been internally evaluating its position within OPEC plus this year. Admittedly, officials did dispel those rumors quite quickly, but there's no smoke without fire. Um, it's still quite clear that the UAE in particular has very grand plans for raising its oil production capacity. It's brought forward its targets from 2030 to 2027 of raising production capacity to 4 million barrels per day compared to 3.1 million barrels per day now. So it's very clear that the UAE wants to try and have a more aggressive raising output over the coming years. And we did see that reflected with the raising its own production quota for 2024 within the agreement last weekend. So it's probably a case that Saudi Arabia has been more aggressive this time around with keys the UAE as well as some of the other members of OPEC plus, such as some of the smaller African producers as well. What about the Russia question? Because that's another interesting dynamic within the group, isn't it? Yes. One of the big questions to emerge from the meeting is Russia and how much it is producing. It's always been unclear whether their production had fallen under the weight of Western sanctions, but now the narrative seems to have switched and there are concerns that Russia is overproducing relative to its OPEC plus target. It doesn't seem like Saudi Arabia was able to get Russia to publish official statistics on its oil production. There will be an independent review, but that's not due until the middle of June next year. So it it does introduce an interesting dynamic to OPEC Plus because if Saudi Arabia is unilaterally cutting their oil production whilst Russia is not abiding by production targets, Russia is effectively capturing Saudi Arabia's market share, which could lead to tensions within the group, although geopolitically they seem quite aligned at the moment. And getting back to the Saudi economy, what does a more constrained economic outlook mean in terms of spending on things like golf tournaments, Ballon d'Or winners, and and giga projects? Yes, so the... Current expectation we have with Saudi Arabia's outlook, um, particularly in terms of the public finances and spending, is that in the near term, at least, it looks as though the government is going to try and maintain its current fiscal stance. We've seen recent measures of, for example, the latest OPEC plus cuts that Saudi Arabia is more aggressive in trying to reduce production. And there's obviously the driver behind the cuts in October and also the voluntary cut in April. But there have also been other measures where they're trying to maximise revenue, such as the announcement of a performance dividend by Ramco, and also measures where they're trying to seek financing to be able to run budget deficits against the backdrop of low oil prices. So there's rumours of a further share sale of Aramco, and they've also been the largest issuer of dollar debt in the emerging world. So if, for the moment, at least, it does look like the spending could continue, but as oil prices drop after, we expect over 2024-25, maybe that does constrain 
how the Lakes splurge on many European football stars, as well as the merger of the Live Golf Tour with the PGA and DP World. Whether that can continue going forward is, is another question. Finally, Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, he has been in Riyadh in recent days, reports he could be visiting Beijing as soon as the coming week. James, you've written a lot about how Saudi Arabia fits into our view of a global economy fracturing into US and China-led blocks. In that context, what's the significance of the Blinken trip? Yeah, it's quite an interesting timing with Blinken visiting Riyadh, obviously back in October when there was the announcement of the two million barrel day or all production cut by OPEC plus, that was quite led by any sort of fracturing move where it might have annoyed the US representatives, but more recently it seemed to be more domestic led. Um, some of the comments that were made by Blinken as well as the Saudi officials do seem to suggest a more sort of positive outcome. Blinken commented on a better human rights record. And there was also comments from the Saudi foreign minister following the meeting where they talked about the prospect of unveiling a domestic civilian nuclear program, they want the US to be a strategic part of that. So that's clearly showing that they still want the US on board. And Blinken himself has said they're not asking uh, any country, and chiefly Saudi Arabia, given that he was there this week, to choose between the United States or China. So at the moment, at least it does seem a sort of more positive outcome. But we've written quite extensively that, particularly over the past few years, that Saudi Arabia has eased off on where it was previously with the US and has moved a bit closer toward being part of a China-led bloc in this sort of world of global economic fracturing. That was James Swanston and Bill Weatherburn on Saudi Arabia, the oil outlook and global economic fracturing. That's it for this week. You can find all of James and Bill's coverage on our website, capitaleconomics.com, along with all our analysis of macro and markets. For full access, including to our events and all the proprietary data that fuels our analysis, check out CE Advance, our premium platform. Subscribe to this podcast from whichever podcast provider you listen to. And until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever. 